McMaster has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at MAC, as we learn the moments that their path from MAC became unconventional. Meet Alvin, a visionary on a journey of reinvention and impactful change. From water engineering professional to leadership development coach, he empowers tech executives through leaders at scale and industry leaders through Duke University's Water Innovation and Leadership Development Program. Through his coaching business, Alvin applies his engineering mindset to foster growth and efficiency, while his passion for male allyship drives inclusive change with Microsoft Canada's executives and Asians Without Borders. Alvin, welcome to Unconventional. So Alvin, thank you for joining us today for our Unconventional podcast. And I think I'm going to jump in and start right about the time you were starting your last year at McMaster and starting to think about, okay, what's life outside of McMaster going to be like once I finish my degree? Did you have a big, did you have a master plan? Like, did you have like, I know exactly what I'm going to do when I graduate and here's all my steps to do that? Uh, Short answer, no. Definitely did not have that master plan in mind. If, if I go back to 2008, which was the start of my last year, it was a recession year, 2007, 08, 09. That was a really bad time financially for all over the world. And so for myself, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get a job in a conventional way, which is apply online and go do that. Um, it was also that last year I started a a student club with a group of people um, that brought in guest speakers from people in the water industry, so drinking water, wastewater, engineering. And for myself, in order to find out what my path was going to be, I needed to talk to people about what paths could be. So were you, I mean, you decided to be like your, your pursuit of your chemical and bioengineering. So when you started at Mac did in the engineering program, did you know you wanted to specialize in those two um, disciplines? Well, the first year is common. We all take the same engineering degree. And then in the second year, we specialize. And I specifically chose bioengineering because I was interested in the biological components of of any kind of process. And that's how I landed on water, wastewater, because it had a big, it had a big um, biological component to having an impact on society, having clean drinking water and, and safe uh, treated water before we release it into the environment. So I think many of us, because where we live and um, the country we live in, in Canada, we take, we take water for granted. So for you, you came to Canada, um, mm -hmm. and so water became very important to you, both you know personally and, and then professionally. So why do you think that was? Well, I was born in Manila, Philippines, and then when I was three, moved to the Middle East and lived in a tiny island called Bahrain for about 12 years after that, before we immigrated to Canada. Every time we would be in the Philippines, uh, we would have... Uh, not reliable water supply and definitely not drinking water supply that we felt safe enough to drink. And so we had to collect them in drums um, if we wanted water to flush with in, in the evenings. Um, and in the Middle East, the water would be so salty that we had to buy bottled water most of the time 
so you can't just drink it out of the tap at the time. So for myself, there was a valuing of water that if I turned it on, my relationship with it was, okay, that's enough. That's, uh, I can only collect this much because other people need it too. So talk a little bit about your first couple of years after graduation and what you um, ended up doing and uh, any, you know, any, let's, let's say like any challenges you had during that time, but also maybe some of the, the great things that happened during your first couple of years in your, your career path. Absolutely. Um, when I graduated in April, 2009, as I mentioned, it was a recession year. So there was going to be a lot of competition with the same limited number of jobs with um, not just new graduates, but professionals that had years of experience that were also looking for a job. So my path was, okay, I started a student club for this association, industry association, and I wonder if I can go network and find out what paths would be a right fit for me. And out of all the money that I saved working at Mills Library, on campus at McMaster, um, I decided I was going to go travel across the US and Canada and attend these conferences as organized by these industry associations where registration fees were almost cheap or, or, or free for someone like a new grad like myself. And I walked into these conferences anywhere from 200 people to 25,000 people and networked. I said, hello. Awkward, awkwardly introduced myself and, and with no, with very little work experience, um, I found myself having really interesting conversations with, with proven professionals with, you know, companies will usually only send the people that would win projects or that were their technical experts. And so I had, I had a direct line to, to these professionals and over time, eventually um, landed a job that didn't exist because I had met people over and over through these through these events and they started to recognize me over time so that must have taken a lot of courage because you know networking whether it's with five people or twenty five thousand people can be pretty intimidating as a new graduate so how did how did you steal yourself to get into a room where there's lots of people who have no idea who Elvin is and you and you're there to sell yourself so what did you do to do that well, I'll have to go back a few years before before that. Um, in my first and second years at McMaster, I, I was going through a lot of social anxiety and still do. And so in order to address my social anxiety, I decided in my third year, third year, I was going to do something that was going to be really challenging and scary for me, which was um, be in front of people. And I struggled with group presentations a lot because I would just stutter or forget my lines completely. And so I went to uh, David Braley Athletic Center and I, I took every class that I could. For, you know, the first one is free. And salsa dancing was the thing that scared me the most. Okay. Meaning I was holding a person, literally holding them in a dance embrace and leading them without using words. And eventually, um, you know, Carlos Escalante was the, was the instructor. I know Carlos. Carlos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he became, a, he became a good friend and he started asking me to assist with the classes. And eventually when he couldn't make it back from, from site on time, 
he would he would ask, hey, can you take over the classes for the first half an hour? And that was one of the first times where I had to hold a class of anywhere from 20, 30 people. And it's like incredible nervousness. And, and even though I could do the moves, could I really explain it? So that was that was the beginning. And you know, starting the student club, um, volunteering a lot for career services at McMaster as well. And I had to be the face of McMaster to potential employers. Um, that eventually became, um, it, that became the starting courage seeds, if you will, for me being able to walk into uh, some random conference center in the US and say, hey, I'm, I'm Alvin. And I don't know if I have anything to offer you, but I have questions to ask you. So in, in many ways, that that takes a lot of courage, but it also sort of talks a little bit about your element of, you know, your ability to, or your trust in yourself to take a risk. And often people are are, are afraid of taking risks. So, you know, before that, were you risk averse or is this, you know, risk is something you're fine with and how you handle your own level of risk taking? Maybe this this goes back to why I went into engineering in the first place was the problem solving, uh, loveful problem solving. So maybe a off the cuff story. Um, when I was growing up and and playing Tetris, if anyone remembers playing Tetris on these little game boxes, I would mess up the screen as far as I could right up to the top and figure my way out down. Oh, okay. Instead of keeping the screen yep. clear. And that was one of the first in indications for me where, oh, I, I like something complicated and complex and something I don't understand. Um, and for me, getting a job was really complex. Uh, it requires a lot of risk because the risk piece of it um, and where I see a lot of people struggle, especially the leaders that I work with, is I want to get this right. I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to fail. And meanwhile, um, the growth mindset that we, we hear a lot about actually requires us to say, I could be wrong and I will definitely get some of this wrong over time. How can I handle that? Yeah, I, I do think people, you know, no one wants to fail, but oftentimes, and it's, it's such a cliche in some ways, but we do learn more about ourselves when we get knocked down and have to pick ourselves up than if everything just goes, if you're always even Steven and everything works out for you, right? So that's right. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, so you've been out of engineering for a couple of years and then you were starting to have some, you know, questioning of what you wanted to do. And, and was this really the, the, the work you wanted or the career you wanted? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, well, one of the things that was clear to me as soon as I started my first job, I, I worked for a big engineering consulting firm in, in water infrastructure was the complex feelings that I had of, oh, I love this stuff, but I really don't care for this other stuff. Yep. And one of my first projects um, that I, because of a person that I'd met through my conferences, uh, Simon, he, he pushed me to, hey, there's this project that we have that requires you to be client facing, that requires you to do presentations, that requires you to visit client sites and, and talk about their data. I love that. I didn't realize that was a possibility. And then there was the design work, there was the report writing, there was the number crunching on spreadsheets that I was really good at and trained at well at school, but drained me of energy. 
Right. And it took me a long time to understand that that um, career and fulfillment has a lot to do with energy. So going to therapy, uh, I remember going to therapy within the first few months of me starting my engineering work, um, not because of engineering, but it was more to do with relationships, but realized it was all interconnected. Right. That my lack of fulfillment at work was help was making me seek uh, coping mechanisms outside of work. And sometimes we just need to talk to someone else who doesn't know anything about us in our lives and no judgment and whatnot. So did you find that very helpful? And and did you have any fear about talking to someone? Initially, yes, lots of fear. Um, You know, when you talk to friends, they care a lot about you and they really want to help. And sometimes the first thing that come out of their mouth is a piece of advice. Right. That doesn't necessarily align with who you are. And when I went to therapy and counseling, um, their approach was, who are you? And how do you get better and be more confident with the choices you make as opposed to following advice that others think you should do? You know, when you said that, um, if someone asked me, who are you? I'd, I'd have to really think about that, how to answer that. So that's probably one of the most profound things someone asked you that, because then you're kind of you had to think about, okay, who am I and where, what do I want to be, I guess, in many ways? Yeah, there, there's a lot of judgment in the world. And by judgment, I mean, um, we get evaluated by people all, all around us. You know, we're, we're, we're celebrated according to whether we meet their value system or meet what they expect of us. Um, but a lot of, a lot of the leaders that I work with, um, they ask me first, what kind of leader do I need to be in order to be successful? And the question eventually I ask them is, who is the leader that you can be when you fully express all the different facets of who you are and what you're strong at and what you're not great at? That's a really good question. I'm here, make me think a little bit more than I thought I was going to during this conversation. I'll <laughs> take this away. Um, so we did talk a little bit about risk and not being, you know, and also, you know, not necessarily having the fulfillment that you wanted. So your next, you know, foray into risk was starting your own business. So can you tell me a little bit about that process and what you're doing now? Oh, that's, that was a long, long process. Um, I worked in engineering you know, engineering consulting. I worked for a municipality um, for almost uh, around 10 years. And throughout that process, I was also volunteering for that industry association for, for the same amount of time where I was getting paid to do something that I was, eh, it's, it's okay. And I was volunteering doing stuff that I really absolutely loved, that I loved enough that I wanted to do it for free. And my counselors and therapists are like, ah, you should look at that. <laughs> you should look at this stuff that you love to do for free. That's the thing that lights you up. And imagine if you got paid to do that. Wow. That's a good question. And, yeah. That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not to say that we turn every hobby into, into a paid thing. Um, not saying that. I am saying being, being more intentional about just because I got trained in this one thing doesn't mean that's a thing I have to do. So if you imagine when we choose our degrees, we're what, 16, 17, 18? Yep. And if you look back now from where we stand, it's like, oh, what did I know then? 
So it, there's this element of acting on what we're learning over time. So you're now um, a develop leadership development coach and facilitator, right? That's what fills most of your time. That is uh, that I would say facilitation and working with groups and teams is my first love and coaching people one-on-one supports that uh, for myself. So that might look like a team comes to me or, or the other teams that I work with and they say, hey, um, we wanna get better at conflict or we have this underlying team culture habit of not saying the thing and we have low accountability. Um, we're really nice to each other though, or we're really abrasive yeah. and um, people are afraid to say stuff because they'll get criticized. How do we, how do we deal with that? And so we combine it with um, skill building, of course, you know, how to better say things so that people hear it, which is the art of crucial conversations. Um, or how do I keep my team accountable and, you know, accept better expectations. Um, so for me, the art of how people have conversations with each other, that's what really lights me up with, with my work. Um, it's, it's messy, it's uncomfortable, because it, at the end of the day, it requires people to do things differently than they were raised or the, that they were taught or that they were given examples of. So has your work in this field changed over the pandemic? Like, do you see things changing because of the pandemic um, when you're coaching someone or you're working on skill development or, you know, leaders are talking to you about the challenges they're having? You know, what do you think, you know, what do you think of the challenges we've had coming out of the pandemic and, and, and how has that impacted your work? In very big ways, um, let's even just talk about hybrid, hybrid work, which is leaders uh, telling me about, you know, it's really much harder to build relationships with people when I can't just stop by their desk or see them in the lunchroom or at the water cooler and, and have casual conversations in order to build that relationship. There, there is more of a tendency of transactional type of conversations, which is, hey, uh, thanks for joining me on the Zoom meeting. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the things I need you to do. All right, cool. Well, let's, you know, we don't want to be on Zoom for too long, so let's, let's wrap this up. Um, and so being more intentional about how do we build relationships with each other when we are not in the same physical space? That was a big change over the pandemic. And then the other piece is, is burnout. Mm -hmm. which is because you don't have those relationships, um, those casual relationships, people, you don't have as much visibility as a leader as to what's really going on with that person. Because as soon as they get off the Zoom call, you don't see them. Mm -hmm. So you don't get a sense for the droop that they suddenly have in their shoulders or, you know, the, the pace in which they're walking that's really uh, leading indicators for, oh, is this person starting to burn out? Because they're showing up in the meeting with a certain sense of mission. Here's the transaction this person wants me to meet with. So are you a different coach now? I'd say I'm always different. There's, there's an evolving, there's an evolution. I'm always evolving as a coach. Um, because with every leader that I work with, my mind gets expanded as to what's possible that people do or think or make sense of. I know it's very highly philosophical, my answer, but yes, 
yes, I'm always learning from, in fact, I, I say I learn just as much, if not more, from the people that I work with. So I guess my other question would be, you know, um, you're an engineer, like that's what you went to school for. Yes. How, how does how does being an engineer help you with the... Um, I'll, I'll say that by describing how I perceived engineering um, from where I sit now, which is it's a way of thinking about and approaching problems in a structured, um, linear way. So when I think about the people that I work with, I can start to see the path that they may need to take in order to be the leader that they need to be, that they want to be. So engineering helps me structure, okay, what is the sequence of things that, that I may want to expose them to or teach them or, or ask them about in order to get there? Um, engineering also, you know, when I was in chemical engineering, we would look at process flow diagrams. So we would look at the system-wide view of something. And the leaders I tend to come to, to work with, they, they'll say, what do I do? What can I do better? Or what can I learn now to, to make all the difference that I need to see? And my engineering mindset allows me to zoom out with them and say, it's more than just you. You require other people to work alongside with you, to be aligned with you in order to make this big change that you want to see. So if they want to say, you know, um, have a more honest, direct kind of conversational culture at work, it's more than just what you ask. It's, it's also bringing people along with you to be more courageous in saying the thing. So engineering allows me to, to see the system view alongside, um, alongside the linear aspect of it. So it's both wide and, and linear at the same time, lateral and linear. Hmm. And I don't think we um, mentioned, but what's the name of your company? I named it as Mindspace Impact. Um, but my website is is my first name last name dot com, so I'm I'm oh, still okay. evolving in that sense as well. Um, <laughs> I actually just uh, I say the copyright for a name that I'm going to evolve to next. Okay, so you're constantly changing and evolving, right? I am constantly changing and evolving. That's right. So water's not too far from your work still today because you're doing something with Duke University and one of their schools. I think that's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, I say that with a sigh because when I, whenever I think of it, I feel energized and, and grateful, um, given that it took me a while to transition from engineering into the work that I do now. Um, yes, so with Duke University, I'm working with the Nicholas School of Environment. Um, the Nicholas School of Environment specifically um, has a program called the Water Innovation and Leadership Development Program. So that program is funded um, through Springpoint Partners. And the intention of that program is to up-level uh, experienced water industry professionals that work in municipalities and utilities across the US in order uh, to up-level their leadership and, and their ability to innovate in that space. Um, given that municipalities are often under pressure between the political aspects of it with the technical requirements, with the, with the uh, needs of residents and, and society. Um, and so I, I take them on a six-month journey 
along with other guest speakers and facilitators with an opening retreat and a closing retreat on campus in Durham, North Carolina and uh, everything else virtual in between. And they learn as a cohort of 18 to 20 people how to communicate effectively with each other. They're from all over the US. Um, they are proven leaders in their own respects over, you know, they, they have about 10, 15 years experience, most of them, um, but they are so, so open and curious and hungry. Um, they, we need this in, in, in the water industry. And do you find that you can balance that, the work you do with Duke in your own, your own business, or is it you've just intentionally said, I need this part to make sure that I'm really good on the other part of my, my career or my life or what I worked I do? They feed into each other. Okay. They complement each other um, very much so. I would say I wouldn't have secured and gotten the opportunity at Duke if I wasn't working with the leaders in the tech industry. Um, with my work at Leaders at Scale as well, um, and vice versa. At the end of the day, it's about how we talk to people, how we make them feel, and whether they come along with us or not. And so we talk a little bit about, we talked a little bit about the dancing and what it brought for you when you were in uh, university mm -hmm. and sort of, you know, post-university and whatnot. And, you know, many times it's thinking about like, okay, work-life balance, right? Like we all need to have a balance and balance doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. mean that, you know, when we're at home, we do nothing, right? We do, we do things that give us a recharge. So what do you do in your life? So you're recharged for the work, but your life is in balance and you're feeling good and, you know, growing as a person. Yeah. Um, well, as an engineer, I can overthink and think about, I can, I'm constantly calculating <laughs> um, whether it's work or whether it's the relationships in my life, you know, how do I say the right thing and et cetera. Um, and salsa dancing for me, when I first started it at Mac in 2006, uh, when I was an undergrad was one of the first times where I let go of my brain and my body did the talking. That's a great way to put it. Thanks. Um, at the time, I didn't know that, that that was what it was. At the time, it's just, oh, this just feels good. I need to do more of this. And, you know, I, I did hip hop dancing at Mac as well. Um, salsa dancing was the one because it, it was a, a literal physical conversation with my partner versus hip hop. You can be with a team, but, but mostly you're dancing with yourself. It's an individual thing. Like you know the choreography. Um, but in salsa dancing, especially in partner social dancing, it's required um, to not just pay attention to what I'm doing, but how my partner is responding to me and how I'm responding to my partner. So it became a source of um, recharge for me. You know, when you talk about work-life balance, it became a, a, a big passion of mine um, to not just dance, but also teach others to, to dance. So I, I would teach at uh, David Rayleigh Athletic Center as well uh, in the evenings. Um, I knew that's what I wanted to do because I would do it for free. There you go. So do you think, do you think today's leaders give themselves enough time to, to pursue things outside of the work or are we still like just focused on work so much? 
the answer is first quick answer is no. Um, yeah. And I would say a lot of the leaders that I work with feel an overwhelming sense of responsibility for the people that they lead. So, you know, you can have kids in the background and in your family and you think about that when you go home. But in some ways, many of the leaders that I work with feel like they have an extended family mm -hmm. where um, if they don't do, if they don't work and finish off that report or finish off that proposal or, or you know, uh, finish off that um, evaluation, they'll be failing the people that they're leading. So they'll need to do it the only time they have, which is after they put the kids to bed or, you know, they'll work past hours and they'll send that email at 2 a.m. Um, out of a sense of, of, sense of duty. Mm -hmm. And what I work with leaders on isn't just, hey, make time for the things that recharge you, um, but also making it compelling for them to do so. Not just a should, but I need to do this for myself in service of the people that I'm that I'm leading, the people that I'm that I love, people that I take care of. Um, because if I don't go to yoga or I don't dance or or I don't meditate 15 minutes at the start of every morning, it actually impacts them anyway. Mm -hmm. That's a really good way to put it um, and to think about it because oftentimes I, I can even just think of my own team, right? Like I, I feel responsible for them, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I can't control everything and I can't be responsible for 25 people all the time. Like, yeah. you know, personal Karen's got to have a minute off, right? But it's, but it's hard and that's a challenge when you take those leadership roles and knowing that you're responsible for people and you feel great ownership and making sure that they're in a healthy, happy and having great, you know, work. And, you know, because we spend a ton of time at work. We spend more time yeah. at work, mm -hmm. whether it's home or not with the people. So that's a really good way of putting it. And there's a role modeling aspect to it as well in that when a follower or someone that reports to you sees you, they most of the time they they emulate. So there's this element that leaders shift in, in terms of mindset of I don't get to tell them what to do, but they'll they'll follow what I do. Right. So if they see you taking a break and they see you taking care of yourself and really meaning it, um, they'll follow suit. And it makes the team healthier. Yeah, that's a very good point. So is there a piece of advice you wish you knew when you first graduated? Or you'd go back and tell yourself now when you were first graduating? I learned this in yoga. And the line is, you're exactly where you need to be. There's an element of, oh, I'm not there yet. I'm going to be a great leader when I do this. Or I'm going to be a good person when I do this, you know? Um, so I see a lot of people, including myself, always looking to the future and, and scared of the past and, and thinking, oh man, like I'm, I'm, I'm really falling short here. And we're harder on ourselves than we need to be because we're never where we wish we were. And so philosophically, there's this element of, I've gotten this far. And I've learned, I know this much, but there's more to learn. You know, there's, it's not to say I can't do things better and I can't keep myself accountable better. Um, and self-compassion with, I'm doing the best I can. You know, the, it's not necessarily Instagram worthy or, 
it's not the you know you don't have this incredible story necessarily of of survival but but we're doing what we can day to day and i think most of the time that's enough i like that because you know what I, I, my life is not instagram worthy i look at some stuff and i'm like man like whoa and then i think it's a generational thing too right like i like looking at pictures and stuff like that and whatever but i'm like sometimes i do things I'm like oh i should put that on instagram ah, i'm not going to do that you know like whatever um but i think social media has made us a little bit more like oh my god what what how is my life right and that's that's not the way we should be thinking about our lives and our journeys yeah um when i think about it as a system you know, social media is great because I can keep up with my friends and I can celebrate their wins with them and, and also support them if they ever ask for help on, on social media. And it can have this unintended effect of comparing yourself to others and, and whether you're behind or ahead. Everybody has to make that decision as to like where they are and they should feel good about themselves. So feeling good about yourself and where you are right now, where do you see yourself in five years? If I were to be so bold, okay. <laughs> you heard bold. it here first. Yeah, be bold. <laughs> um, the name of the next venture that, that I am starting and got a name for um, is Choose Human. Choose Human, okay. Yeah, I actually applied for that name two years ago. I only received the certificate a couple of months ago. And the what's behind that is both the skill of being compassionate and being generous with each other um you know our needs are pretty simple as humans like we we want connection uh, we want to do something that matters that has a meaningful impact to others and to us um, but the way in which we achieve those things can be quite complex because it depends on where we are right now and how we grew up and who the people around us. And so how do we balance that? And how do we have conversations with each other where we bring out more of the best of each other than activating the worst? So which is human, I would like it to be a place where people can practice these skills of, of bridge building conversations so that we can help each other find the things that that mean a lot to us and we bring these back to our communities and bridge, build bridges with the people that are very different from us. It's easy to build bridges with people that we already get along with. It's effortless actually. Um, but if we want to solve big problems like climate change and, and um, inequities in terms of race, gender, uh, socioeconomic, it requires us to actually connect with people that, that we don't understand and don't understand us. So uh, that's the next thing I, I foresee for myself in the next five or 10 years is to, to build that. Um, not by myself, of course, because you know the, the irony of that, if I did, <laughs> but to, to find and attract the people that, that want the same thing of, of, of uh, harmony, but, not in a, we're all the same kind of way, but we're all different and we can see each other. So what do you think you're going to relaunch with the new um, name, Choose Human? Great question. I'm in the process of, of writing about it. Okay. So I'm writing, a, I'm, I'm, I, I got in my car in the middle of the pandemic and drove across uh, Western Canada. So I, I live in Victoria now, 
but up until April 2021, I was living in Hamilton and Toronto. And that journey sparked the beginning of how do I connect with people that are different from me? So I'm in a way I'm living the book and writing about it. And that will be the basis for what I begin next or choose human. And so why the move to the West Coast? The trees, the mountains, the lakes, um, the environment, you know, we hear a lot of people say, I'm going to go out to nature to, to unplug. And I twisted that on its head and, and I said, actually, I'm coming here to plug in because I think about it as energy. Working with people is, of course, a fulfilling thing for me. And it's also energy intensive to hold space for other people and to hold space for their discomfort as they change. I'm not responsible for them changing. They're responsible for changing themselves. But it's, it's like, I'm, as coaches and facilitators, we were the pot for the thing that gets cooked inside. And we need to be strong enough sometimes to do that. Um, and so coming to the West Coast is a way for me to recharge in a sustainable way and, and um, also remember what it feels like when I don't know anyone else around me. And if anything, that forms the basis for the book, which is connecting with people. Yeah, well, we're going to keep an eye on you and see what happens. And and Victoria's a lovely, it's just a beautiful place in Canada. It so is. That's, that's it is. amazing. Yeah. Um, as we get close to our, the end of our time um, together, we usually like to ask a couple of wrap-up questions. So I'm going sure. to start off, as I always start off with everybody, what's your favorite memory of your time at McMaster? Hmm. My favorite memory of McMaster was in the in the dance classes at the David Braley Athletic Center. Yeah, because uh, I remember feeling terrified. And also when I was on the other side of the classroom, um, making others feel comfortable, learning something they've never done before. And I, I kind of loved that. Excellent. Is there a book you're reading right now you'd like to share with or recommend to people or a book you've read recently that you'd recommend? Um, this is a fairly common book that that people that, that has, has been recommended to me, um, The Artist's Way. And it is by Julia Cameron. It's about morning pages. Well, one of the things that she recommends in the book is morning pages. But essentially, a lot of it is about reflection. Mm -hmm. And when I talked about, you know, who are you? What do you want? We have to spend the time to just be with ourselves and, and learn to listen to what actually comes up. So that book is a good way of introducing some structure for myself. And finally, what's your idea of perfect happiness? Perfect happiness is embracing every experience that comes along or that we create. Um, if anything, it's about as humans, uh, perfection is doesn't exist. But if we embrace the little moments that we think are perfection, maybe that will make us happier than we ever realized, right? Yeah, and and embrace the 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 not so great times. Yeah. That's that's part of who we are as well and and being human. We learn so much from those as well. Excellent.
Well, thank you so much today for joining me, Alvin, in this really great conversation. And and uh, I'm going to keep my eye out for Choose Human. And please let us know what's going on on your journey. And um, what an interesting journey, you know, an engineer, a salsa dancer, water, leadership coach, out in the woods, a great, <laughs> a great McMaster story. So thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Karen.